The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Mindful that many of you may be in a holiday mood, we're abandoning our usual seriousness to indulge you with a daily series of comic tales from some of our favourite writers. They range across fiction, non-fiction and memoir and are all part of a funny story special in The Guardian's Weekend magazine. You can read the text versions at theguardian.com. This is one of six podcasts we'll have for you. Enjoy. Number 11 by Jonathan Coe Josephine Winshaw Eaves was the daughter of Sir Peter Eaves, one of the longest-serving national newspaper editors in the country, and the late Hilary Winshaw, who had been famous in her day as both a newspaper columnist and a television executive. Hilary had died in 1991 when Josephine was only one year old, so she was not even a distant memory to her daughter. And yet Josephine had grown up fascinated by her mother's legacy. Her father, on the rare occasions when they had a real conversation, was forever telling her that Hillary had been a genius among columnists, a superstar, a woman capable of taking the most minor event in public life and spinning from it 1,000 words of pure, energising vitriol. Not only that, but she had belonged to one of the most influential British families of the post-war era, of which Josephine now was the only direct descendant. No wonder that, from a very early age, she had carried with her a burdensome sense of her own importance. The teenage Josephine had struggled to reconcile this sense of importance with a contradictory awareness that, as far as her father was concerned, she barely mattered at all. With the violent and premature death of his wife, Sir Peter had lost all interest in family life, if indeed he had ever had any. Increasingly, he lived at the offices of his newspaper, in which he had installed a comfortable bedroom right next to his own office, and rarely visited his Kensington home, in the spacious confines of which Josephine grew up alone under the desultory supervision of a series of nannies. A fiercely intelligent, articulate girl, she made smooth progress through London's private education system, Glendower followed by Godolphin and Latimer, before proceeding to Cambridge, where she graduated with first-class honours in art history. Along the way, however, she made few friends. Those who tried to get close to her found her both conceited and needy. She had a tendency to make snap judgments about people and developed a reputation for wounding and gratuitous put-downs. In this respect, at least, she was following in the footsteps of her father, who was well known for his bruising economy with words and occasionally, after one too many brandies at the Garrick, his fists. One memory stood out in particular for Hilary. During the school holidays, aged about 13 or 14, she once had to spend a few hours with him at the newspaper, childcare arrangements for that day having fallen through at the last minute. She sat in on one of the editorial meetings and could remember vividly, for years afterwards, the way that each of the section editors ranged around Sir Peter in a circle had been obliged to pitch their story ideas to him. To each one, in turn, often before they had even finished speaking, Sir Peter had spat out his instant verdict. Crap! Bollocks! Fucking awful! Shit! 
Bollocks, nobody's interested in that fuckwit. Great, we need an excuse to shaft that cunt. And so on. It had been an awe-inspiring lesson in editorial procedure which had increased her respect for her father a hundredfold and made her more desperate than ever to gain his attention. In her last year at Cambridge, she started a blog entitled Plain Common Sense, in homage to her mother's column. She regularly sent Sir Peter links to the latest entries, but he almost never responded, even though she was doing her best to imitate the tone and content of his own newspaper and to carry on her mother's tradition of ruthless, instantaneous opinion-forming. Undeterred by her lack of first-hand knowledge, Josephine began to campaign against what she called Britain's benefits culture, which handed rewards to idlers, scroungers, loafers and cheats, while ordinary, hard-working people, of whose silent, victimised existence it suited her to appear convinced, picked up the tab. At the centre of her phantasmagoric worldview, there lay a malignant, amorphous monster called the Left Liberal Establishment, dedicated to the redistribution of funds from the deserving to the undeserving, and to the general sabotage of everything that was right and proper in British civil society. The paradox of this monster was that, although Josephine knew exactly what its tentacles consisted of, she could not have put the knowledge into words. It was a slippery, evasive nexus of institutions made up of grant-awarding bodies, human rights organisations, legal advice services, NGOs, certain branches of the Church of England and the judiciary, and, of course, hovering over it all, more powerful, more insidious, more venomous than any other public body in the kingdom, the British Broadcasting Corporation itself, whose mission it was, in the eyes of Josephine and her growing band of supporters, to drip-feed a toxic daily diet of left-liberal propaganda to the nation at the taxpayers' expense. Sir Peter was now 76 years old. Although he showed no signs of retiring, his rampantly illiberal views and irascible personality were so closely identified with the newspaper he edited that it was impossible to imagine the two ever parting company. When Josephine graduated, he temporarily stirred himself out of his state of paternal apathy and offered her, without much enthusiasm, a platform on the newspaper's website. Josephine took it, of course, but what she really wanted was a regular slot in the print edition. Sir Peter was reluctant to endorse his daughter's efforts to that extent. For one week and one week only he relented, when a star columnist went on holiday and needed a stand-in. Josephine knew that she had been handed a unique opportunity and pulled out all the stops. Combing through the archive of columns from her mother's glory days, she chanced upon a particularly outrageous example from 1990 in which Hillary, enraged by a recent court judgment in favour of a disabled tenant whose landlord had unlawfully evicted her, had railed with unusual vigour against the left liberal establishment's skewed value system. The landlord of this property, Hillary had written, was a white, middle-class, heterosexual, God-fearing, law-abiding citizen of what used to be Great Britain, and every one of those attributes was a card stacked against her. Were her claims respected? Did her point of view get taken into account? Of course not. Asked to choose between her rights and those of, to choose a scarcely hypothetical example, a black one-legged lesbian on benefits, our judiciary would inevitably come down on the side of the latter. In her own column... More than 20 years later, Josephine set about defending the coalition government's introduction of the bedroom tax. 
But her larger point was that the climate had not changed much in the intervening decades. Britain was being dragged down by an underclass of scroungers who lived in a something-for-nothing culture, and Hillary's black one-legged lesbian on benefits could still be held up as a paragon of modern entitlement. It was high time, and only right and proper, that the government should be doing something radical to cut down Britain's welfare spending. Sir Peter agreed with her sentiment, but he was not impressed with her reasoning. He thought that the archetype Josephine had resurrected from her mother's column was hopelessly out of date. You fucked up your argument in the last few paragraphs, he told her. A black one-legged lesbian on benefits, even our readers know there's no such thing. They're only worried about Muslims these days. Put your little straw woman in in a cab and then you've given them something to worry about. Josephine was stung. She went and looked up Nikab on Wikipedia and for the next few weeks turned her bile, once again confined to the online edition, onto Britain's Muslim community, bemoaning its failure to condemn terrorist atrocities and accusing the left of giving succour to radical preachers. Meanwhile, Sir Peter continued to ignore her efforts, and her sense of exclusion stewed. His words, even our readers know there's no such thing, gnawed at her soul. Why was her father so dismissive? Why did he assume that, just because he was not paying any attention to her words, nobody else was? Did he not know that her one print column about which he had been so scathing had been picked up by a well-known satirical quiz show on television and mocked and vilified on primetime TV? What was that if not a badge of honour? Within a few weeks, any stand-up comedian who wanted to milk an easy laugh from his audience had only to mention Josephine's name. What was that if not a mark of success? As a matter of fact, Sir Peter was aware of these developments, and he was furious about them. It was one thing not to think much of his own daughter's writing, but it was quite different when other people, both inside and outside the paper, began to make fun of her. One quiet afternoon in the newspaper's offices, a disturbing scene took place. Neil Thompson, the deputy features editor, and Derek Stiles, one of the few remaining full-time subs, were sitting at a computer screen watching something on YouTube. They did not realise that Sir Peter had entered the office and was standing directly behind them. They were watching a section from leading stand-up comic Mickey Parr's DVD, Would You Credit It? On Stage and On Fire. It was the section where he attacked Josephine Winshaw Eves. The routine was not especially funny, but Neil and Derek were enjoying the feeling of behaving like naughty schoolboys. The cosy subversiveness of having a laugh at the expense of the boss's daughter and they chuckled along enthusiastically with the live audience. The words that stopped them in their tracks came from a few feet behind them and were uttered in the unmistakable patrician tones of Sir Peter himself, although they had never heard him speak quite so quietly before or with such an icy note of menace. Right, you cunt, he said in little more than a whisper. In my office. Five minutes. As Neil and Derek told the story to their ex-colleagues in the pub afterwards, it wasn't the speed of their dismissal that was so shocking, it was the undertone of quivering, barely-controlled hatred in Sir Peter's voice and the eye-watering inventiveness and cruelty of the violent acts which he swore he would arrange to have performed on them if they ever came within 100 yards of the building, or, indeed, if he ever saw them again. To say that they had touched a raw nerve would clearly be an understatement. 
A brief account of the sackings was included in the next issue of Private Eye, where readers were also offered a recap of some of the more colourful episodes in Sir Peter's career. A punch-up with a rival editor at a press awards dinner, an allegation of assault against a Kensington parking officer, which never came to court. The magazine's report concluded with one slightly sensationalised detail. The fire in Sir Peter's eyes as he dismissed the two disgraced employees was described as murderous. When he alighted upon the word, which Nathan himself had highlighted in pale green, DCI Capes allowed himself a long, grim smile of satisfaction before laying the magazine down emphatically on the beer-stained table. I see, he said. Well, that certainly puts a different light on it. Now, I'm not saying that we should jump to conclusions, Nathan insisted. Of course not. This is just gossip. It gives us nothing definite to go on. All the same. DCI Cape sat back and drank from his pint of London pride deep in thought. He and PC Pillbeam were seated in the public bar of The Feathers, a stone's throw from New Scotland Yard. It was an old-fashioned pub where they had found a secluded booth at some distance from the other patrons. The lighting was dim, and their seats were upholstered in discreet burgundy-coloured leather, adding to the atmosphere of subdued conspiracy. Nathan was delighted, of course, and somewhat astonished that his email to DCI Capes had elicited this invitation rather than the expected wall of official silence. All the same, he was beginning to feel uneasy. His own as-yet-vague intuitions, combined with this one unsourced report in a mischievous magazine, seemed already to have planted in his superior's mind the certainty of a deliberate, cold-blooded assassination campaign. In truth, DCI Capes himself was far from certain, but then certainty was hardly a prerequisite for taking action in the world of 21st century policing. Many other factors had to be taken into consideration. One factor, in particular, was of paramount importance, and in this case it loomed very large indeed on DCI Cape's horizon of considerations. This was the involvement of the media. It was some weeks since he had felt the gaze of a TV camera trained upon him, or had a journalist's microphone thrust under his nose, and he was beginning to smart keenly from this deprivation. To arrest a national newspaper editor on suspicion of murdering two well-known comedians would certainly bring him back into the limelight. A few years ago, such a thought would never have crossed DCI Cape's mind. While the occasional sensational case might have called for a broadcast press conference, received wisdom held that the majority of police work was best conducted in private, well away from the media's hungry, intrusive glare. But all of that had changed now. A series of high-profile arrests of British disc jockeys and light entertainment stars of the 1970s on charges of historic sex abuse had brought DCI Capes into direct and exhilarating contact with top journalists from television, radio and the newspapers. Better still, these arrests had brought him into contact with the stars themselves, a development in his career which he could never possibly have foreseen and which filled him with a sort of childlike, or at least adolescent, wonder. DCI Capes was in his early fifties. When he was a teenager, many of these celebrities had been, if not heroes to him, at the very least, objects of awe and curiosity. In those days, he had kept an autograph book, which was filled with the signatures of second-rate TV comics encountered at the dismal seaside holiday camps to which his parents would take him during the summer holidays, and with scribbled messages, Keep on rocking! Have a poptastic birthday! 
from disc jockeys he had queued to meet at special local events like Radio 1 roadshows or the opening of a new supermarket. Now, more than 30 years later, he still struggled to comprehend that his latest role was to be photographed alongside these same figures as they were led, grizzled, bearded and bewildered, in and out of courtrooms to testify in cases of alleged sexual assault which they, if not their victims, could barely remember. Truly, time played the strangest tricks. But it was a few months since Capes of the Yard, a feeble, feeble nickname he reflected for the thousandth embittered time, had been involved in one of these cases. It was a few months since his name, let alone his face, had been in the papers. It was a few months since he had felt the power of life and death over a prominent figure in public life. He was aching to get back to it. And this was a fantastic opportunity. In this instance, show business met journalism in a heady, intoxicating cocktail. A national newspaper editor harbouring feelings for his daughter which were so passionate, in whatever sense, that they made him violent towards those that criticised her. Feelings that might easily, it was not too great a leap of the imagination, make him commit murder or arrange to have it committed when he discovered that there were comedians who had dared to pour scorn upon her for the sake of an easy laugh. Frankly, it couldn't be better. So what if nothing was certain at this stage? Speculation and innuendo made far better copy anyway. So, PC Pillbeam leaned forward expectantly, what will your next move be? DCI Capes pursed his lips. It could be that this is too big for us to handle alone. We'll have to call in some specialists. Forensics? MI5? Special branch? No, I'm talking about a PR firm. Pop Bellinger, I think. They're the best in the business. We use them a lot to liaise with the media. PC Pillbeam did not like the sound of it. Before you say anything to the press, he cautioned, I think you ought to take a look at this. It came out just a couple of days ago. From his document wallet, he produced a DVD. The cover showed a young, tousled, slightly overweight white man wearing a large, brightly coloured shirt which was untucked at the trouser. He was talking into a microphone. The DVD was entitled Ryan Quirky Whimsy Agogo Live and Loquacious. Thanks all the same, said DCI Cape, sliding it back across the table. But I'm not really a comedy fan myself. I prefer a good Brit flick, something with Ray Winstone or Danny Dyer. No, I mean this is relevant to the case, said Nathan. Extremely relevant. Start watching after 42 minutes. Ah, you mean it's another attack on Miss Winchor Eves? Yes, it is. N not a severe one, quite mild by comparison with the others, but still, if I were Mr Quirky, I'd be checking that my doors and windows were locked before going to bed at night. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.